Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where experts are given just six minutes to present their argument. And this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include decision-making on the job, career and family, and child care. Our first speaker today will be David Deming. He is the Isabel and Scott Black Professor of Political Economy at Harvard. David's research interests are really varied and, and include skills and technology, higher education, as well as the long-term impacts of early and K-12 schooling. Today, I've asked David to speak about one of his recent papers on the growing importance of decision-making on the job. Our second speaker is Claudia Golden, who is the Henry Lee Professor of Economics at Harvard. She is also the author of a new book that was released just over a week ago that is entitled Career and Family, Women's Century-Long Journey Towards Equity. Claudia is one of the leading economists in the fields of economic history, education and technology, and the gender gap in employment. I can also tell you firsthand that Claudia is a fabulous teacher, as she was my professor for microeconomics when I was an undergraduate at Penn. Our final speaker today is Elizabeth Cassio, who is the DeWalt H. 1921 and Marie Ankeny Professorship in Economic Policy at Dartmouth College. One of Liz's current research topics is evaluating the success of pre-K schooling, and this topic is of great importance today because the federal government is considering expanding pre-K education funding nationwide. Liz will be discussing a history of child care and where we're heading. What is unusual about this panel of speakers versus some of my previous panels is that here the speakers are very good friends and have collaborated together in various research projects. During the live call, please feel free to email me questions at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com. All right, let's begin today's program with our first speaker, David Deming. David, go ahead. Every year, the National Association of Colleges and Employers publishes the Job Outlook Survey. This survey asks hundreds of companies about their hiring needs and, in particular, the skills that they desire most among new employees. Every year, the same two skills stand out as being both highly demanded and in short supply among candidates. Those skills are, first, ability to work in a team, and second, problem solving. In the next five minutes, I'm going to explain why it is technology that has made these two skills so desirable. A century ago, four out of every ten workers in the U.S. were farmers. Another three of the ten worked in blue-collar jobs in factories, mining, or construction. The vast majority of jobs in this country a century ago were physically demanding, repetitive, and sometimes dangerous. Jobs like these favor the young and the healthy, and there is little gain to work experience beyond the first few years on the job. That's why, as late as 1960, the peak age of earnings in the U.S. was about 37. Today's economy is completely different. Less than 2% of jobs are in agriculture. Only 8.5%, or 1 in 12, are in manufacturing. More than 80% of jobs today are in the service sector. The peak age of earnings is not 37 now, but 55. The average worker in 1960 experienced earnings growth of about 40% over their lifetime. Today, it is over 100%. This is because jobs today are knowledge intensive and require workers to be adaptive and to learn from experience. We have a service economy now because of automation technology. We used to have a bunch of guys digging a hole, now we have bulldozers. We used to have people on the assembly line at auto plants. Now we have industrial robots. Service jobs are harder to automate because the goal is to help people rather than to make things, and people are unpredictable. 
If you want to future-proof your career, try to be good at things that are easy for people but hard for machines. Chess, calculus, challenging to most of us, but trivial for a computer program. Having a two-minute unstructured conversation? Most people can do it, even if some are better than others, but it is impossible for even the most advanced software. So, having good people skills will keep your robot overlords at bay, at least for now. The second highly demanded skill is problem solving. Good problem solvers can navigate from problem all the way to solution without needing the steps in between to be fully mapped out. This skill is especially important in the age of coding, artificial intelligence, and process automation. Think about your own job. Could you write the script in advance? Is your employer paying you to execute on job tasks that are decided upon ahead of time? Or is your value defined by your ability to adapt? Not to do, but to decide what to do. The fastest growing and highest paid jobs are in what we call professional services. Consultants, lawyers, engineers, accountants, and especially managers. If you look around and you feel like management is a more common job than it used to be, you're right. Management and management-related occupations are nearly one-third of employment in the U.S. today, compared to less than 15% in 1960. What do managers do? They don't make anything physical. Rather, they make decisions. Decisions about how to allocate scarce resources, including their own time and the time and attention of others. A bit of reflection reveals that almost all knowledge work leans heavily on good decision-making. For example, surgeons have to be skilled in various procedures, but they also have to be good at deciding whether a patient is a good candidate for surgery in the first place. Consultants are hired to help companies make decisions. What does it mean to be a good decision-maker? We make decisions by predicting the likely consequences of each potential action and choosing the one we think is best. Decisions are context-specific, and so the more data you observe about the world, the better you get at it. Predictions are harder in complex work environments, and so experience matters more and it takes longer to accumulate. In a recent paper, I show that work experience actually pays off more in jobs that require a lot of decision-making. These are the highly skilled professional service jobs I mentioned earlier. Because these jobs are automation-proof, they've grown faster in the last 50 years. And that has fundamentally changed the career earnings profile of the average American. Income peaks 20 years later today than it did in 1960. And career earnings growth is dramatically higher than it used to be. This is true even after accounting for other changes that have happened since 1960, such as women entering the workforce and the growth of higher education. The reason is that we can build a machine or a computer program to do any one thing better than a person. And as the technology frontier moves outward, we are increasingly compensated for our ability to adapt, to be good problem solvers, to be, if you will, general purpose technologies. And if I had six more minutes, I'd love to talk about how we might design or redesign our education and training system to more intentionally build the important skills of teamwork and problem solving. Thank you. Thanks, David. Um, I have a question about how higher education plays into um, this skill building in the following way. Um, you know, I imagine that some of the things that we learn in school, uh, the value that, of what we learn versus our work experience, it depreciates over time. Yeah. Um, and yet we hear that um, it's so valuable, this higher education in, 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 the, in the long term. Yet with, with you explaining that peak earnings has moved out from, you know, by 20 years, and we have its depreciation of higher education value over time. What's going on? How do, how do those two concepts fit together? That's a great question, Larry. So I think it's important, when you think about the value of higher education, to kind of break it into two parts. Um, one is the specific things you learn how to do. So if you're an engineer or you're a computer scientist, you might learn, you know, specific programs, specific mathematical or 
computational processes, you know, things that are kind of in demand today. So, and, and those things do move fast and your skills do become obsolete, as you mentioned. So if you're a computer science major today, you're learning things that are completely different than what you learned 20 years ago. And that's less true in other majors. Um, but there is a component of uh, your value to the firm that is tied into the, the specific skills you know. But there's something deeper that's going on, which explains why actually the earnings advantage for college graduates actually grows over time rather than shrinks. And the reason is that it's not just the specific skills you learn that matter. It's also the kind of learning how to learn or learning how to think, critical thinking, problem solving, as I mentioned. Um, you might want to think about what you do in college is actually practice uh, um, for that kind of open-ended problem solving in the workplace. And that's the kind of skill that doesn't depreciate. So if you learn how to write analytically, if you learn how to carefully take apart text, you learn how to work in a group on um, long-run projects where sometimes people don't, don't do what they're supposed to do and people have different strengths and weaknesses and how do you balance that. Those are the kinds of skills that are future-proof, that are, they don't become obsolete. And you know, colleges could do those things better, but you, deal, you do still do quite a bit of that kind of learning in college. And so I think that's actually responsible for the lion's share of the returns to college over time. I want to talk about um, vocational uh, learning. Yeah. So, um, yes, some of the four-year colleges work on critical thinking and problem-solving skills, but there are others that work on uh, very specific skills, like um, how to drive a truck, how to do plumbing, how to do welding, yeah. um, nursing uh, schools. Um, I recently invested in a business uh, that does income sharing agreements, uh, where the, we pay for a kid's um, vocational education, um, and in return, if the, if the, if the young person um, earns more than a, a set amount, they share the earnings uh, with us. Yeah. And, and, and if they don't earn above some bogey, then their education is free. Um, how do you think about vocational education as a means of, of either going back after you've done some work, uh, before you've you know, entered the workforce, uh, how does, because it does seem like you also seem to want um, vocational learning. Um, yeah. How should we think about new skill building? Yeah, so I think, uh, again, going back to these two types of skills, think about it as specific skills versus general skills or um, other ways to think about it. Vocational education, I think, is an important um, gap filler uh, for people who you know, have if there's a need in a particular labor market and you, you want to move to a different type of career, and if you, you know, get Cisco certified as a software engineer, or if you learn how to be a welder, or if you learn how to um, be a an, an, you know, um, radiology technician, there's a variety of vocational-like um, degrees and certificates that provide a nice earnings premium um, for a specific job. But they're, they're, not a, they're not a global solution because they're kind of um, brittle in a sense, right? They only really apply to one type of job and often even a small set of employers in the area where you live. And so if those employers leave town, you, you don't have much of a way to, to get the benefit of those skills. Or if the technology of the job changes, um, then you also don't. So they're not always a long-run solution, which is why you see more efforts to try to get people to go back to school to kind of top, top off their skills. But if you look at what employers actually want, this um, job outlook survey I mentioned and other data clearly show that em employers feel that um, they're very happy to have somebody else pay for um, training for their employees, but they think that the most critical weaknesses are actually in these, they sometimes say soft skills, um, you know, I would call them general purpose or higher order skills like critical thinking and problem solving, et cetera. It's sort of like if you don't have that baseline, it's hard to move from job to job. And so if you're from the perspective of, of someone who wants to go get an education, you want to be getting skills that are valuable in lots of jobs, not just one. 
And so I, I would think of it as a both and rather than an either or. Um, I was reading one of your uh, older papers, I think, that you wrote with Claudia uh, related to, to see um, what employers were looking for in resumes to decide whether or not to interview or hire people. Yeah. Um, maybe you could comment a little bit about that because you've mentioned some of these skills that they were looking for. But I think that you know, it's also kind of a function of the economy. And let me give you an idea I was thinking about. One was is that um, if the economy is not doing very well, then you may want to reach out for someone who you think might be overqualified for the position because you can get someone on the cheap. Uh, and they're not going to leave you when they, uh, for a long time so you can get some value. But like right now, the economy is running uh, on, in the employment side so hot that um, I think it, employers might be reticent to look for people who have uh, these sort of skills you're talking about uh, because for fear that they're going to get bit away very quickly. And we have to invest, as you said, in very firm, specific knowledge. Um, how do you think about the decision about who to hire, who to invest for specific knowledge in, and the fear of getting that employee taken away. Yeah, so I think it's really important, Larry, in this conversation to think about it from the perspective of each side of the labor market. right? And, you, and when you do that, I think you quickly see that there is a kind of mismatch um, inherent in the relationship between you know going to get skills and what, what employers want versus what workers want. So if you're um, somebody who's you know a young person going to get your education, you, you don't necessarily want to get you're, you're trying to get skilled up for a lifetime. So you're trying to go and spend a few years and get get acquire a set of skills that'll make you employable for the rest of your working life. Um, and those skills are often quite general. So that's what the college where the college degree comes in. On the other hand, if you're an employer, you have a perspective. I have a specific need I need to fill right now. In a hot economy, as you said, those needs get pretty urgent, and so you're willing to pay a lot for something right now to, to plug an immediate hole. And you actually don't really, you might even be willing to subsidize that skill. Um, you might you know, pay for your existing employees to get it because it's valuable to you. But you're never going to get employ, employers to um, invest in general skills building. Why? Because if my employer pays for me, I shouldn't say never, but you're rarely going to get it. If you, my employer pays for me to go get a degree from a prestigious college, I can then leave that employer after a few years and take my skills somewhere else because the skill is useful everywhere, not just in this particular job. And so it's much easier to develop arrangements um, between the supply side and demand side of the labor market when the skills you're building are very specific to a particular firm or industry than it is to build skills that are useful in, in all types of jobs. So that's why you need an education system. That's why you need public support of higher education, of K-12 education, because, precisely because those skills are so general. Um, you're not going to get a private market solution to that um, in any kind of global sense, I don't believe. Uh, let me also just briefly mention, Larry, since you mentioned our audit study, Trip Down Memory Lane for me and Claudia. So that paper was actually, we, we um, created a bunch of fictitious resumes and we um, sent them out to a bunch of employers and we randomly changed the degree from which you, um, the, the, you know, the school from which you got your degree. So some people had degrees from, uh, bachelor's degrees from large online for-profit institutions and some people had bachelor's degrees from less selective regional public institutions. Uh, and what we found was that the people who had degrees, these are not people, these are fake resumes who made up that are identical except for the degree, the resumes with the for-profit degrees uh, got many fewer callbacks, um, suggesting that employers view that degree as a weaker signal of skills. So that, that was what we found in that study, and I'm happy to talk more about that, or maybe Claudia can, can pick up the torch in her section of the show. There was a bunch of other interesting things about that 
um, I thought was interesting. One was you noticed that there was no discrimination on the basis of race in the callbacks. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to understand how you how you tested for that and uh, what you observed. Yeah, so the way we tested for it is, is because we also randomly varied the race of the applicant and found no difference in callback rates. Um, so that's it, quite a real result from the perspective of our study. Um, I think one, so I have a hypothesis, we can't prove it, but um, as job applications become more online, you know, um, many of the resume studies, the famous one by um, um, Marianne Bertrand and, and Sindel Molinathan, um, was pre-internet job postings. Um, and I think what a lot of companies use now is um, resume screening software. So they um, automate the process of surfacing candidates for callbacks, which is kind of a virtue rather than a vice from our perspective, because if they're downweighting some colleges more than others, we actually want to know that, because that's kind of mechanically leading to differences in employment outcomes. But you could see why employers would be quite hesitant to do that on the basis of race. right? And so when you're using a screening technology, it, that might get rid of the racial difference in callbacks, but it, for example, it might not. Um, it doesn't rule out discrimination on the basis of, of hires. You know, so you might still leave an applicant of color in the in the pool to call them back to protect yourself legally, but then not hire them or something. So, I don't think you should conclude from our study that there's no discrimination in the labor market. I just think you could conclude. Yeah, that this in is our, Claudia. In our study, let, let me just say one yeah. thing for the audience: these resumes do not include race, but they have name. And we used names that were more black names or more white names or more Hispanic names. That's correct. Yeah. Thanks, Claudia. Yeah. So we signaled race with the names. Um, and the way we did that, slightly different from some of the other studies, was we picked, um, we, we, we basically calculated frequency of names and then uniqueness of names by race. And so we picked the most common, most frequently black or Hispanic names and used those. All right. Um, different direction. This one relates to um, brains versus brawn. So you, you mentioned in your introductory remarks that the value of brawn has been in steep decline, first with agriculture and then with manufacturing. Uh, and now we're in this much more brain-intensive service economy. Um, we got a question from Alan Herskowitz, who is one of our listeners, and he was wondering about how AI will affect um, these various uh, human-machine interrelations. Yeah. And uh, let me try to narrow the question in the following way. We've had um, discussions on the, our program where uh, Charles, Charles Isbell, for example, from Georgia Tech, who runs the Dean of Computer Science over there, he mentioned that um, the way that what the machines are powerful, the AI machines are powerful, humans are powerful, but together they're really powerful. And it comes down to how you can use this um, information or use these tools uh, to make you better. And I'm thinking, as an example, in medicine, there, there's talks, there's, there's talks of, of new methods where doctors would be given information from the AI machine to suggest different conclusions that take advantage of all the research that's out there. How do you think about how um, this, the, uh, this new skill of how, do, how you, you work interrelated with the machine uh, to solve problems. So team yeah. building, that was other people but with machines. Right. So, so I think that's a great, it's a great question. I think it's important, if we want to dig in on this, to define exactly what we mean by AI. So there's this kind of two conversations around AI, loosely speaking. One of them is about the current state of AI, the uses of AI today by firms. You know, for example, the Netflix algorithm that decides what 
shows to recommend to you is, is an example of artificial intelligence, or how does Amazon know how to price the things you're buying as you scroll through the app, or what to offer you. That's artificial intelligence technology in its current state. And then there's this kind of nebulous conversation about AI, general, general intelligence, you know, computers taking over the world. I don't have a lot to say about that second conversation, but what I can say is how I think that um, this skills, um, skill demand will be affected by the kinds of AI technologies that are already in existence and kind of the near future of it. So if you think about what those technologies are doing, um, they're actually um, assembling large amounts of data, which are just records of past experiences of you know, customer transactions or web search behavior, whatever it is. And they're, um, they're, they're technologies that are fundamentally about making predictions. So they take massive amounts of data, much more than a human could computationally handle, and predict some outcome. So they might predict, well, given all the things that Larry's watched before, what does he want to watch today? And they're going to use lots of people that look like Larry, and they're you know, viewing histories and kind of combine it and think about all the interactions between the variables in ways that are much more complex than what people can do to get a better prediction. But making predictions is only an input into decision making. It's not the decision itself. Right? And so that prediction may be more or less accurate depending on what else is going on. And so what I think people are good at is figuring out you know, how do you use predictions as inputs into decisions? How do you design the environment so that you're making the right choices or paying attention to the right things? Like what am I even trying to predict? Why should I be trying to predict it? What do I care about? Whose, whose welfare am I, try, am I interested in? Those are all these kind of fuzzy meta-level things going on in um, human interaction and human decision-making that I think are far more complex than what any AI can currently handle. And so I see them as highly complementary, but that, that's my, my reasoning for it, which is largely in agreement um, with Professor Isbell. I, I want to bring Claudia into the conversation. Claudia, uh, you wrote this book, Education Technology, and you looked at over the history um, of let's say the 20th century, but we made uh, as a society choices, individuals made choices about how much to invest in education. And, and you noticed that the returns of education varied over uh, various long-term cycles. Sometimes there would be uh, too many people with skills relative to the job opportunities or not enough people with skills resulting in very large returns to education. Given what David has been saying about um, these new uh, skills that managers and uh, businesses are looking for, how should we expect people to change their decisions on how to invest in their own educations? And what are we seeing out there in terms of changes in uh, choices of majors and uh, going to school and for how many years um, based upon the skills that they have? Sure. I, I think that um, going back to the history, it was rare in history for there to be too much education. There may be one small period in U.S. history in the 1970s, uh, which led to the writing of a book by one of my colleagues, The Overeducated American. But in fact, not much after he wrote that book, he was wrong. And in fact, the returns to higher education zoomed up. And that was a brief period in which the end of the Vietnam War uh, led there to be a huge group of individuals who were highly educated in part because they were trying to escape from um, being drafted. So in fact, it's almost always the case that there's too little uh, good education. And one of the reasons is that individuals cannot sell themselves. We do not have slavery. And so therefore, there's no collateral. 
And so education is an uncollateralized loan. You don't get a, a mortgage on it. And in fact, the loans that we do have are loans for which you cannot get out of. And that has a very interesting uh, history. So if anything, we should uh, be investing more in education. In fact, the cutbacks of the state system, of community college system, has led to uh, too little education. The returns to uh, the, the marginal year for the marginal student in higher education, which many very, very good uh, empiricists have identified, is still extremely high. So that's the first point. Uh, then you ask, well, given that people sort of should be investing in education, what type of education should it be? And clearly that, you know, when young people go to a college and see this enormous array, like, a, you know, chocolate of potential majors, it's, it's very difficult. And uh, there's a, a more of an attempt to give information about you take this major, you can probably earn this much in the future. But there's obviously... Uh, a, a lot of uncertainty, but we can see that more and more young people are going into uh, computer science, into biology. Many of the humanities are being left, although they're still extremely useful. Writing, <laughs> writing is still a very, very important skill. I mean, just, just following that up, um... What David is saying when we're looking for general problem-solving skills and writing skills, you would think that this would result in people, more people wanting to major in the humanities, but we're seeing an exodus for specific skills like computer science, which David said had these highly depreciable uh, educational benefits, and that you know, what we really should be doing is building skills that we can use for a lifetime. How do you make sense of, of that? But there are there are sort of general coding fields where it, the universities, when they uh, teach computer science, are not teaching people how to put square pegs into square spaces. They're teaching individuals to think about what type of pegs to create. So these are, you know, the really good programs uh, are not vocational programs. This is not a sort of a, a uh, well, what might call a pre-professional degree. This this is a uh, a degree that is rooted in a higher order mathematics. Yeah, and just to say, um, Larry. I mean, I, th I think there's um, there's a, a a sense in which the answer is just you really you really want both. And what you see. So I've done some earlier work looking at the exactly what we've been talking about, which is. Um, depreciation of returns to high-tech majors, STEM majors. But that doesn't mean that it's bad to be a STEM major. It just means that you've got an initial earnings advantage of, let's say, 40% if you're a computer science major relative to being a history major. But then by the time you're you know, 35, 40 years old, that advantage has gone down from 40% to 15%. But it's not like you're doing worse. What you see empirically is that um, at some point, if you think about, you know, you've acquired the frontier knowledge in computer science when you go to college, but that frontier moves outward rapidly and by the time you're 40 or 45 years old, you need to have enough knowledge to understand what's happening in the field, even if you're not actually doing the programming, then you become a manager or somebody who makes decisions about what you should invest in. And that requires some technical knowledge, but it also requires these general purpose skills. 
And those are the people that really advance these days, are people who have both the technical skills and the general purpose, you know, complex higher order skills, problem solving, critical thinking, et cetera, teamwork. You know, we had um, Zvi Galil, uh, who runs Georgia Tech's um, new online computer science school. And I think he has something on the order of 12,000 students now in his program. It's the largest online um, program. And I'm just, it's, what's really interesting about it is who's taking the classes. So it's much more domestic than Georgia Tech. Uh, it's much older uh, than, than the typical Georgia Tech student. Um, and what I think is really interesting is it's, it's cheap, uh, much cheaper than the Georgia Tech degree. I think it was like 8,000 bucks or something a year. Um, and it's a master's program in, in computer science. How do you think about online? Uh, you know, you were showing that employers were not very, ex uh, not excited about the for-profit schools. How do you feel about the online approach to allowing yeah. for um, mass production of these skills or these um, concepts that we're talking about? Yeah, great question. So when I think about online degrees, I, I think about it again in two different parts. So one is the, think about it, roughly speaking, as the big lecture. So there's some things about education you can scale almost infinitely, right? So like, why would you listen to David Deming lecture, Econ 101, when you could listen to Claudia Golden? She's much better. And if she produces a 45-minute lecture and I produce one, we can all watch it. The marginal cost of another person watching it is zero. And so the returns ought to go to the best lecture, which is going to be Claudia rather than David. Right, so in the lecture component, which is just watching somebody else transmit knowledge, that scales to the online format. But that's not all that education is. Education is also meeting your learning needs where they are, identifying holes in your learning and addressing them, providing support around the learning experience. That's tutoring, that's checking your work and providing feedback. Those things really don't scale online at all, actually. I mean, you can do them online, but the online advantage, there's a, there's a uh, benefit in terms of access. So there's some folks who couldn't physically be on the Georgia Tech campus who could go into this program. So that's a benefit to them. But it's not like an infinite cost scaling. And so when I look at the online education landscape, what I see is not much evidence that it can, it can bend the cost curve at all on these important support components of education. I think it can on the lecture component. And so I think as online education matures, what we'll see is more more separation of the functions, right? So like, it's not clear to me that an in-person 600-person lecture is any better than online, and so you'll think you'll see more of those things go online. But you know, here at Harvard and other institutions that are fortunate to have the resources Harvard does, a lot of what we do in education is actually supporting students in their personal learning journey, and that's very expensive um, and doesn't particularly is not particularly helpfully done online. Yeah, Larry, the, um, the program that you described was evaluated by two economists, Josh Goodman and Amanda Pallas. And uh, they found that it to have an enormously high return. This is the Georgia Tech program. But part of it, I think, is that there was a touch component. So that's what David was referring to, whether there's a high touch or sort of a no touch component to these online courses. You're, I think you're absolutely right. There is a touch, and they use students. Um, they've hired a lot of TAs to help them, um, and then a lot of the former students have become TAs as well as sort of a symbiotic uh, relationship. All right, let's, uh, let's try a, a different path. Um, David, uh, given this, your findings, how would you change public policy to, uh, 
to improve or to take advantage of this information? Yeah, so I mean, for for me, the primary implications um, w would be in the education and training side. So how do we, if we think these, if you accept my argument, and you think these are important skills, you know, are we doing as much as we should to build them intentionally in education and training institutions in the U.S. and around the world? And I, I think the answer to that is no. Um, I think, you know, some people acquire those skills. As I mentioned, people do acquire those skills in college. That doesn't necessarily mean that college is the most efficient way of delivering them. It probably isn't. Um, but the difficulty is that unlike, I don't know, you want to call them foundational skills like numeracy and literacy, you know, there's not like, okay, it's fourth period, we're going to teach teamwork now. Um, these skills are kind of, they sit above specific content, and they're more about um, how you approach information, um, how you work together with people. And so it's not as simple as, you know, writing a textbook and transmitting knowledge to people. You sort of have to engineer the learning environment differently. And so I do think you see that happening in a lot of places. Um, to, from, as far as I can tell, as a college professor myself, um, there's much more team orientation. There's many more group projects now um, than there used to be. Students don't like that um, always, but they need to do it because that's the way the workplace looks. Um, but I think even, even the idea of grades is very individualistic. I mean, I don't have a good alternative solution, but I think a lot of what we do in, in education is kind of implicitly or even explicitly pushed towards individualism when actually learning how, you, learning how to you know, make a team better um, is, is really important. And so I've done some work on, on how to do that. Um, which I'd be happy to get into. But I think basically starting from first principles and saying if we were to redesign the learning environment from scratch to build these skills, how would we do it? And then trying to get us closer to that, I think, is the, is the right frontier to push on. Um, just as I think about, um, you know, I'm dated. So um, we're all dated. Took, we're all a little dated. I took, I took Claudia's class 37 years ago. Um, that, that means know, I gave it 37 years ago. <laughs> exactly. That's where the math works. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, when I had my group projects at Penn, um, what happened was invariably, you know, in the group, one kid would do most of the work and the other kids wouldn't really do yeah. it. And it was, there was a lot of anger and frustration with those students that kind of, you know, took advantage of the system. But in the work environment, you know, that probably wouldn't occur very much. There would be, there would be a problem, a disciplinary problem associated with that, and that guy would be kicked off the team. And going back to the, the Georgia Tech example about how uh, that touch work with it was other students and, uh, who became TAs and how they interacted with those people. And I could think of, of certain of the Montessori schools even where, you know, third graders would teach second graders and ninth graders would teach seventh graders. And there were, you know, this idea of, of working together in a sort of symbiotic relationship like that, where how are how are the universities dealing with uh, and comparing th this problem that I just emphasized, I just gave? Yeah, so I think right now what we've done is say, oh well, you know, it's important to learn how to work with others, so we're going to take the same types of assignments and we're going to make them group projects instead, which is a kind of add-on to an existing structure rather than a, a any kind of fundamental rethink. Um, but, you know, I mean, and I don't, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers here, Larry, but I think one, one thing you might think about is suppose we designed a course whose sole purpose was making you a better team player. How would we design that? Like, that, that's not something that's incidental. Like, we're teaching you calculus, but on the way we're teaching you how to do it in groups. No, we're actually teaching you how to be a better team member. What are the important components of being a good team member? Well, obviously, there's effort, right? If somebody's, you know, shirking and not paying attention and not coming to meetings, that's bad. That's kind of basic. Um, but then there's also what economists would call comparative advantage, right? So when Claudia and I write a paper together, we arrive at a division of labor 
you know, in our case, since I'm, I'm a little um, closer to the data frontier, maybe I would do the data work and Claudia would do the writing because she comes up with wonderful titles like the title of our paper together, Nimble Critters or Agile Predators. Um, and she would, you know, write the introduction because she, she knows the field better than I do and she can set the table well. But that's very different than the division of labor we w I would arrive at if I was writing a paper with one of my graduate students where I might serve the function Claudia served and my student might serve the function that I served. And so do I have the wisdom to understand where I fit in on a team when everyone has different strengths and weaknesses? And some people have that naturally and some people don't. But what if we tried to teach that? What if we intentionally gave people feedback about how they divided their labor in a group and how they could do it better? You know, it's just not something we're doing in, in, in most colleges and universities because we're not intentionally building the skill of teamwork or the skill of decision-making. Like, how do you use information to make better decisions? How do you give people feedback so that they understand, you know, how to make this decision better than the last one? Um, it's all kind of in the air and incidental rather than being done purposively. David, this is Claudia. What about athletics? Is that some reason why we have athletics in universities? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I don't know if it's the reason we have athletics. I, I, I mean, maybe one, one benefit of athletics is to build team skills, and I think you do hear from a lot of employers they like to hire athletes, although that's a mix of being a good in a team and, you know, having the self-discipline to keep yourself to a schedule. I mean, I, when I get up on Sunday mornings, I live on Harvard campus. When I get up on Sunday mornings, the only people I see out before 10 a.m. are the athletes, and so there's something to the work ethic of an athlete that matters too. But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, think. I think, again, like there are elements of the college experience that build these skills, but we ought to lean into them and try to build them even better and build them for everyone, not just the people who happen to be in the right clubs or sports or what have you. That reminds me, one of my work colleagues at Sombra, this Bruce Tuckman, once told me, no matter how many times I get promoted, I always end up working for a former football player. <laughs> so there, there is something to that. All right, we're going to uh, move next to, uh, to Claudia's discussion about career and family. Uh, but first, I wanted just to tell a quick story about uh, how I met Claudia. So um, right before my freshman year at Penn, I got the, the book of courses to sign up for. And I looked for Econ 1A, which is the introduction to microeconomics. And it was being taught um, in large classrooms, lecture halls, by uh, Professor Mansfield, who wrote the textbook. And there was one general honors class um, offered by Claudia uh, in a, a small was called a Benjamin Franklin Scholar class. And I had not been uh, selected for the Benjamin Franklin Scholar program, so I decided that um, I would write a letter to Claudia asking for permission to take the class. And I wrote the letter, and I waited. There was no response, so no big deal. I figured I would just show up for the first day of class and see what happened. And um, Claudia got up in front of the class, and she said, over the summer, I received the following letter. And she proceeded to read my letter to the class. And what it basically said was that um, I was, I mentioned that I had worked at a stamp and coin shop and I noticed that the prices of stamps uh, fit supply and demand, um, even though some stamps from like Anguilla trade um, at very low prices, even though they were quite scarce, there was no demand for the stamps. Uh, but for certain American stamps where there had been millions of made, uh, they still went for much higher prices and showed the importance of supply and demand. And then Claudia said, all right, should we let this kid in the class or not? And uh, by a vote of acclamation, I was, I was accepted, and I was very pleased uh, to have taken Claudia's class. And with that, I now turn to Claudia um, for her new book to talk about career and family. Claudia, go ahead. In 1963, Betty Friedan wrote about college women who were frustrated as stay-at-home moms. Today, almost 60 years later, 
college graduate women are largely on career tracks. Women graduate from college at far higher rates than men. They earn advanced degrees at about the same rate, but their earnings and promotions relative to those of the men they graduated with and to whom they are often married continue to make them look like they've been sideswiped. These women, too, have a problem with no name, to paraphrase Friedan. So what is it? I show in the book how five distinct groups of women who graduated college from 1900 to the early 2000s responded to the problems of balancing career and family as the 20th century progressed and as a sea change in the labor market and the household altered work, marriage, and childbearing. Many barriers to women's careers were removed, giving us a sharper vision why equity for dual career couples remains stubbornly out of reach and what that means for gender equality. The new problem with no name is greedy work. By greedy work, I mean jobs for which working more hours or particular hours or working harder during certain portions of one's life have disproportionate returns. For example, if doubling the number of hours worked, maybe from 40 to 80, more than doubles the implicit hourly wage, we have greedy work. Couples with children and other care responsibilities will be enticed by the greater income of greedy jobs to jettison couple equity. When a heterosexual couple gives up couple equity, they increase gender inequality for themselves and in the economy as a whole. I'll explain first why that is the case and next what might be done about it. Children take time and at least one working parent must be the on-call at home parent. But on-call at home jobs, say being a lawyer at a small boutique law firm, pay far less than the on-call at the office jobs, say being a Park Avenue law firm lawyer. On-call at home jobs enable more flexibility at work. If both members of the couple took the flexible job, each would earn, let's say, 120000 a year. Alternatively, one could take a greedy job and earn, let's say, 150000 a year, while the other member of the couple remains at the flexible job and earns the 120. Couples are thus enticed, hereby the added 30k a year, to give up couple equity. Because women are generally the ones who take the on-call at home job, gender equality is thrown under the bus along with couple equity. With couple equity, they would earn about the same amount. But without couple equity, in this example, women get 80% of what men earn. Couple inequity and gender inequality are actually the two sides of the same issue. The problem of greedy work 
is the main reason why women with care responsibilities earn less than men. Yes, there is real discrimination, sexual harassment, bias among managers and supervisors. And we should stomp all of that out as if they were cockroaches. But even if we brought in a giant exterminator, we would still have a significant gender inequality in earnings for the reasons I have given. So what can be done? Three things. First, reduce the cost of flexibility through various means, such as better substitutability in jobs. Create teams of substitutes, not complements. Improve handoffs between professionals with information technology. Reduce the need for long-distance travel. And in fact, the new world of hybrid work may be moving in this direction. And number two, lower the cost of caregiving. And we're going to hear more about this soon from Elizabeth Cassio. And three, change gender norms and get men on board. And we may be moving in that direction. I hope we do. In sum and in conclusion, it is important to acknowledge the enormous progress made in the last 120 years in women's attainment of career and family. Yet, there is still a big problem reflected in a host of gender gaps in the labor market and at home. Knowing what the problem is and giving it the right name will help us. It doesn't solve the problem, but it focuses our attention on the right issues. Thanks. Thanks, Claudia. I wanted to open up with uh, trying to combine it with one of David's Deming's introductory remarks about the change in work over the last century. He mentioned the dramatic decline in agriculture and in manufacturing and more towards the service economy. And the physically demanding work is, was a natural benefit for the brawny male uh, at the expense of the female, but those advantages are now gone away. H how should we think about um, this transition towards the skills that David was mentioning, uh, team building, et cetera, that favor women? And is this something that's now something much more gender neutral? So the, the change from brawn to brains is the an extremely important shift across from the late 19th to the early 20th century that led to the rise of women in the labor market, particularly the more highly educated women. So when the only jobs that were the main jobs that were available were the brawn jobs, uh, norms began to form um, and these were reinforced by age-old norms for lots of different reasons to protect children, that women should not work. Not just women with young children, but women shouldn't work. And one of the reasons was that if a woman was in the, a married woman was in the labor market, it was sort of an indication that her husband was slothful. And so it was a norm that put pressure on men to you know, be good workers and provide for their families and not go to the bar and drink too much. But as 
the world shifted from, and, and this was actually pretty early in the 19-teens and the 1920s, saw an explosion of white-collar jobs, of the brain jobs, not brainy, brainy jobs, but not the brawny jobs. More women entered the labor force, and women could stay in even after they were married because the norm sort of began to disappear. And so the shift has been of utmost importance, and we see it played out in country after country in the histories of many countries in terms of the rise of women, particularly adult married women in the labor market. But let me shift to what David said, and I hope to bring him into the conversation, because some of what he said, in fact, uh, could uh, sort of turn this against uh, women's employment and women will be sort of swimming uh, like salmon upstream, attempting to swim upstream. And here's the issue. Some of what David is saying is that the individual who has more continuity in the labor market does better. This notion that earnings rather than peaking when their people are younger or peaking when they're older is in fact an indication of the returns to labor market experience. And if women still have breaks in their labor market experience, if women still work in part-time jobs at certain moments in, the, in, their, um, in their lives, then this greater advantage, this increase in the returns to experience in fact, will be going in the other direction for, for women or has been. I shouldn't say will be because what he's talking about is something that has already happened. So, David, do you see a gender component in what you're working on? Uh, that's a great point, Claudia. And yes, in the sense that um, these patterns that I described, um, while they hold for, for men and for women, they are more pronounced for men uh, than they are for women. So you still see you know, the age earnings profile getting larger and shifting, you know, later for both men and women. Um, but if you kind of do the decomposition, this seems to matter more. I hadn't actually thought about what the implications are for gender equity, but, you know, given what I'm saying, I imagine it would probably make the problem worse. And I think the intuition is exactly right. Um, it's not that a shift to the service economy is, is, is inherently um, gender bias. In fact, if anything, it looks like those jobs are more female-friendly, some of them. Um, but what happens, as you say, is that it does, you know, if your job is client-focused, so if you're a, you know, on the partner track at a high-profile law firm or in a consulting firm, your job is to basically be available 24-7 for your client. And people with childcare and other external responsibilities who, in our society, are mostly women, you know, can't afford to do that, and that takes them off the track. And so I think what you're saying is exactly right and something that you know, it seems like an important thing to work on as we, you know, you know, try to push toward more gender equity in the workplace. Yeah, I think that it's feeding into my sort of definition of greedy jobs. But I think it's even more in the sense that it has to do with the growth of management and the impact of scale as well has increased the value of individuals who are, it's not just that they're working sort of uh, an enormous number of hours in each year, but they have 
enormous continuity and they have a lot of experience in 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 being in various uh, work environments. I think yeah. that that's sort of the essence of what David's point is. Yeah, I think that's right. You have a lot of one way to think about it is that. Um, um, there's so much knowledge embodied in a top-level worker at a big firm in terms of decisions they made in the past, roles they've been in in the organization, and the firm really doesn't want to give that up and wants to find those people that they trust and kind of squeeze everything they can out of them and have them stay as long as possible. And that continuity, you know, does harm people with interrupt, you know, who, who by necessity have to interrupt their work histories. So yeah, I think I'm I'm, I'm in violent agreement with you, Claudia. Sure. Okay, Just a, can I re, can I re, rephrase it uh, the question in a different way? Um, let's imagine that you've got um, one worker who works 40 hours a week, another one that works 50 hours a week or 25% more. And David, if you were saying that there was um, either content returns to scale of um, experience, so if you work 10 more hours a week and you've got 25% more ex experience, that you'll earn a return on that extra 25 hours of work, 25% yeah. uh, yeah. more of work. Um, there may be decreasing uh, returns to scale, there may be increasing returns to scale, uh, but if, if, if you just said it was linear, we would expect to see, um, it, to the extent that there's a gender bias in number of hours per work, then you would see that exact sort of return to scale. Your thoughts on time and experience and skills? Claudia, you should take that because this is your expertise. Yeah, so here, here's the, the issue. The, the question is, to get to fundamentals. Why is it that there should be a nonlinearity here? So let me put it in the following way. If someone works 40 hours a week and they get an implicit hourly wage, why should that hourly wage be greater, that implicit hourly wage, if they work 50 hours? Uh, so we can think about this in terms of certain fundamentals. So you can think that a client, and many of these are client-facing positions, uh, and this is a slightly different model than the one that uh, David was talking about, but let's say that a client is, uh, is willing to pay more if at any random point they want the professional to work for them. Well, that would then mean that you would get this nonlinearity. However, let's say that we can fix this by having uh, a perfect substitute. So let's say that you have someone who uh, is at work and realizes they have to leave for an hour to take their mother to the cardiologist. Uh, if, they, if there was an individual, they're an accountant, if there was an individual who had access to all of the information on the accounts and stepped into their office and the client calls, they can answer their question with perfect fidelity. Under those circumstances, you would retain the linearity. Now, David's model is a little bit different. It's a different model than this. And it would say something, the fundamentals are a little bit different. And under his model, you, the substitutability would not get rid of the issue because his model is a model about the building up of the human capital of the individual and the fact that somehow either working these additional hours or working 
more years or more weeks or whatever gives that person um, an edge because they're they're learning about something more about the landscape of this field. Okay, but if it has to do with this issue of substitutability, and I think much of it does, then we we can go to a world that's more linear than nonlinear. I have a question about um, how compensation is structured. Um, I've worked in industries where <clears throat> you eat what you kill, and it's directly related to the contribution that you provide the firm. Um, and yet I, I, I'm unaware that there's more equity in eat what you kill frameworks than it is in management-determined compensation. How do you think about um, that as it, providing any information to the problem? Or maybe the other thing is, should women gravitate more to eat what you kill sort of environments um, to help minimize uh, gender inequality? So we're going to have to think hard about, you're going to have to help me about eat what you kill in the sense that I'm thinking about rainmakers that an individual right. goes so, out and gets there. Yeah. Okay. So um, examples. Um, eat what you head, kill um, might, might be yeah. a bit of a problem for individuals. So, so if we're still in a world in which women, so if, if we're still in a world in which the givens are that one member of the couple is more on call at home and one member of the couple is more on call in the office, the question is, where are the, you know, how can we even out things so that the on call at home parent isn't losing out? And my answer before was we can create linearity by having greater degree of substitution as in the world, for example, of pharmacy, or as in the world of pediatricians who form group practices, or anesthesiologists who form group practices. Eating what you kill seems to me to be going in the opposite direction. Yeah. Let's drill down on the example of the pharmacist, which you lay out in your book. Um, and you, you give the example that, um, well, I grew up in the town of Glencoe, Illinois, and there was a drugstore at the corner called Wren's, and this was owned by uh, an individual uh, and managed by an, an individual. And it was like a business. It was a small business, and you know his profitability was based upon how well that store did. It was a very challenging job. Um, it was run by uh, uh my friend Gary Feinerman's father, uh, he was the pharmacist there, um, and it was, it was a good little business. And then it was sold to Walgreens, and it's now a Walgreens. And to Claudia's point, there's easy substitution um, among the pharmacists there now. Uh, it's, he, that individual is no longer responsible for thinking about it as a business. Um, it no longer produces equity-like returns because he's investing human capital in a business that may uh, create something much more valuable. And as a result, because the pharmacists are no longer individual owned, but are mass chains, um, it's the business has become uh, feminized and it's now uh, a majority of pharmacists are women. Is what's going on, is it that we've moved away from a single 
kind of a it's a it's a business versus it's a job versus the complexities of the job. Is it the simplification of of the hours and flexibility that's driving this, or is it the very nature of what that business is? And then as a final point, um, I fully expect that in the in the next few years the pharmacy market's going to be massively disrupted. Um, I'm waiting for Amazon to announce that they're going to deliver your drugs within you know same day delivery at your house. And I they did. A lot, I think they're I think, in the I process. They just did. <laughs> so I imagine that. But there's um, still a pharmacist around. Yeah. I understand, but maybe they'll be doing it. At, and I just, I just imagine that the returns associated with being a pharmacist are about to, it's about to be disrupted. How do we think about, you know, who goes into that business now? Um, whether or not flexible wages uh, or flexible time is appropriate. How should we think about the pharmaceutical industry? Okay, this, this is like a many, many different questions. I know, uh, sorry. Let, let, let me just take them one by one and remind me if I haven't answered them. So the first thing is that um, pharmacists are, number one, highly trained, and they um, do an incredibly good job for us. They are our first line of defense. I think that many people who didn't think that, that there was a pharmacist back there finally realized there was when they went and they got their um, COVID vaccine and they realized that these people really are often the first line of defense. When you feel ill, you might go to your pharmacist and explain what's going on and they'll give you some ideas and then uh, tell you whether you should call your physician or not. They are incredibly highly trained and they're also very highly remunerated. So they're way up there on the income scale. Now, the switch from self-ownership to corporate ownership, uh, there were two other qu uh, changes as well that were incredibly organic and that led to a far more linear relationship between hours worked and earnings, which is what I was talking about before, which would be extremely good for individuals who every now and then need to work fewer hours or fewer weeks in the year. And the other changes were very much more standardized drugs and also Information, remember I said that if information technology was such that you could pass along information with very, very high fidelity, then no one would care whether you were the tax accountant that they had seen last year or this other person was the tax accountant. Very few people go to the pharmacy and say, you know, I gave my prescription to Joe but now Letitia's there and she doesn't know me. But in fact, pharmacists know everything about you. So the, the point is that these were changes <clears throat> that improved the working conditions and the remuneration for anyone who wanted to work part-time at some time or work various hours or call the let us say, the shots. So yes, the residual claimant used to be a guy and he used to hire female pharmacists. And by the way, the field of pharmacy may look more 
quote, feminized, but there has always been for a very, very long time, a very large fraction of pharmacists were women. They just didn't own the shop. They were the part-time employee who worked for the, uh, who worked for the owner. And finally here, in terms of Amazon stepping in, there are a very large number of mail order pharmacies now. And within those mail order pharmacies are a lot of these same very highly educated, well-paid individuals whom, yes, we still depend upon as our first line of defense against various disorders and diseases. I was thinking about um, this this concept of this inflexible um, greedy work and the high returns to greedy work. And your plan is to um, to reduce the amount of of benefits related to greedy work, or, or um, allow firms to come up with methods so that um, the benefits of greedy work decline. And I was thinking, who is going to be the chief beneficiary of that? Um, will it be the, the shareholders, or will it be um, or will it be the the, the women workers? Because I would think that both. to the extent, both. okay, and why? Why wouldn't it just translate away from uh, why? Okay, why would it pay the women way. more? Why can't it just go to the shareholders? Well, the idea is, is mainly to make the flexible jobs more productive, and in many ways, that's what's happening in the wor- in, in the new world that that we're in. I'll give you an example. So it used to be that if you were a consultant or if you were in finance or if you were in accounting, that you would go to Tokyo to uh, close a deal, that you would go to Zurich to do the M&A, that you would go to Beijing to sign the contract. Under those conditions, that, uh, under those conditions, uh, there would be um, uh, a flexible job in which you didn't do all these things and you didn't get the benefits from them. So the greedy job is the one in which you did all this traveling and you were compensated for doing that and you are earning $250,000 a year because you aren't seeing your kids on the weekend. You're not going to the soccer game. You're missing out on this. You're missing out on all the wonderful joys of being a parent, which is why you had the kids in the first place. So the shift that we've now seen is that over the past year, we haven't been doing the M&As in Tokyo or signing the contracts in Beijing or Zurich or whatever. And yet these things have been getting done. And so it's quite possible that the beneficiary of this will be just about everyone. We will not have to spend the money on travel. The flexible job in which the individual couldn't do this traveling, now the person will be able to do all these deals and not have to travel. So this is a technological change 
that we suddenly grasped because of the terrible pandemic. This is the great silver lining to that Mm -hmm. terrible dark cloud that's been hanging over us. And somehow this could be a means, at least in the example that I gave, around greedy work. But let, let me answer your point a little bit better because markets work. And if it's the case that more and more men say, I, I want more out of life. I don't want to be in a job that requires that I'm here 60 hours. I want to go home for dinner at five or six o'clock then they're going to walk into someone's office and say, you're paying me a lot, but you know what? You're going to have to pay me double this to get me not to have anything to do with my family. Okay, I don't like this. (laughs) This is bigger than the great resignation. I want more. Well, hearing that, the firm is going to say, hmm, we should do something about this. Maybe there's a better way. Right. And, or that could result in greater uh, payments for uh, inflexibility um, and greater, greater inequity associated with it. Exactly. But that's the point about the market. So this, this would say, oh, so you're making a half a million a year and you're asking for $2 million. Okay, I'll just give you $2 million. <laughs> Well, <laughs> then you say, who pays? The stockholders pay. Um, one of the things that you, 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 you said was we should think about couple equity and, you know, economists used to think of family as the unit, not so much the individual and thinking about it, going back to the 19th century, when we had agriculture, it was a family unit on that farm. And now we have a family unit that works, uh, a wife works in one firm and potentially the, um, husband works in a different firm. Um, and then the family unit has decided, like, how are we going to care for these kids? How are we going to care for our parents? Um, who's going to take that? my mother to the cardiologist, as you said? Um, we have to kind of all figure this thing out. And we make um, each spouse makes decisions about how to maximize family dynamics. Why do we think that the current um, decisions that are being made are in some way suboptimal? Why, why this decision that women spend more time with the kids and helping the parents with medical care uh, is suboptimal in some way? And why do you think it will change uh, given uh, future preferences in terms of like, how that work gets done? So it's, it's suboptimal because she's giving something. I mean, the, the point is that if we have two individuals, why should they have a different opportunity for career and family in their lifetimes. And uh, the way things are now, there's sort of a set of traditions, one might call them social norms, in which we, you know, uh, over a long history, we can we see that this is getting less and less, but it's still the case that women take the back seat. And as I said, when couple equity is is jettisoned, gender equality is thrown under the bus. We seem to worry as a nation, as people, that women earn less than men. 
We worry about that. We talk about it all the time. And yet, and to explain why that's the case, we talk about the cockroaches. We talk about gender bias and hiring and discrimination. We don't talk about the big thing, which is the issue of couple equity. So if we are interested in it, we should understand what the real issue is, what the real problem is. If we want to solve gender inequality in the labor market, then we have to admit that this is where it's coming from. All right, I think this is a good time to transition and bring in uh, Elizabeth Castillo. Uh, she will be discussing uh, childcare. She is the DeWalt H. 1921 and Marie Ankeny Professorship in Economic Policy at Dartmouth. Um, she's recently published a paper on Does Universal Preschool Hit the Target Program Access and Preschool Impacts? And she'll be talking about um, childcare. Go ahead, Liz. Well, it's pretty simple. Parents of young children need childcare to participate in the labor market. The pandemic made this really clear. School closures at the end of the 2019-20 school year and continuing hybrid and virtual learning models last year left parents of elementary school-aged children, and especially moms, scrambling to meet the educational needs of their children while also trying to work. Some just gave up on the work part, leaving the labor force entirely. Now you might be wondering, why start a conversation about policy design and childcare by bringing up public education? Well, even though public school teachers don't like to think about themselves as being babysitters, the reality is that their jobs are both educational ones, about an investment in the future of the economy and those general skills that David was talking about, and caregiving ones, about making it possible for the economy to function right now. Until the pandemic, most of us didn't fully appreciate the caregiving part. And it wasn't a goal of public schools at their establishment, but it's a fundamental societal benefit of public education in a modern economy where mothers work. The role of an early childhood educator or caregiver in a child's life is not that different. They provide both care and education, but we've taken a sharply distinct approach as a society to the care and education of children under the age of five. Whereas kindergarten today is free and accessible across the country, early care and education or ECE is not. There's limited direct public provision, and subsidies to offset the cost of private programs are limited as well. These costs can be high, both because prices are high and there can be long distances to providers. Before the pandemic, government spending on ECE was less than $40 billion annually, almost an order of magnitude below spending on public education by all levels of government combined on a per capita basis. The U.S. ranks at the bottom of the OECD in terms of the share of four-year-olds enrolled in pre-primary education, and on spending per capita on ECE. If anything though, research by developmental psychologists, economists, and others has shown that investments in the education of young children are relatively high returns. And if I had to, I would argue that if any kid needs adult supervision, that kid would be an infant, toddler, or preschool age. So what gives? There are a few reasons we find ourselves here and we need to understand how we got here to know where we can go. First, caregiving in the US has historically been undervalued. It might be because caregivers have tended to be black and brown women, or it might be because of norms surrounding a mother's place in society. Regardless, childcare has tended to be viewed as a service that yields only private benefits, much like going on a nice vacation or out for a fancy dinner. Sure, there have been moments when the federal government has gotten involved in childcare, emergency situations like the Great Depression and World War II, but these were aberrations. I don't think we can ignore the racialized politics of the era 
for Richard Nixon's veto of the Comprehensive Child Development Act in 1971 summed up the longstanding stated view on federal involvement in ECE that certainly lingers in some quarters. Government involvement would bring, quote, the vast moral authority of the national government to the side of communal approaches to child rearing over the family-centered approach, end quote. Second, even once we recognize the education part of ECE, funding for public education in the U.S. began at the local level and remains highly localized, which hampers ECE expansion. There was a certain elegance in the beginning. Local funding of public schools through the property tax allowed families to borrow from one another to fund their children's education, spreading the cost across a lifetime, while remaining invested in the quality of local public schools. State governments became more involved in elementary and secondary school funding over time, largely to address inequalities across communities. But public education is still the domain of state and local government, and ECE is an educational service that yields benefits that don't respect school districts or even state boundaries. Econ economists think that public goods like this are underprovided relative to what, they would, what, what would be socially optimal. Still, state funding helped to transform the parameters of public education in ways that recognize ECE as education. For example, state subsidies were critical to the final push of the kindergarten movement, which you might be surprised to know happened from the 1960s to the 1980s. They've also been fundamental to the establishment of pre-kindergarten or pre-K programs for four-year-olds and in some cases three-year-olds, particularly since the 80s. I've shown in recent research that when pre-K programs are available to all children, like public schools are, not targeted to disadvantaged children, a route that some states have taken, they tend to look significantly more like public schools in terms of their impacts on children's learning. The benefits of uni universal pre-K are substantial, interrupting a widening of the class-based test score gaps that otherwise wouldn't slow down until kindergarten and beyond. Moreover, projecting forward to earnings, they are large enough to justify the additional costs from serving all children, not just the disadvantaged. But progress is slow, given the reliance on states to do the heavy lifting. Not all states have pre-K programs, and among the ones that do, Offering universal pre-K is relatively rare. The pandemic shocked this equilibrium. A substantial number of children who should have gone to kindergarten last year didn't go. And the, the childcare sector remains substantially smaller than it was in 2019. But now we see the problem more clearly. The dual roles of public school teachers in educating and caring are now more widely acknowledged, understood, and dare I say, valued. And that has shined a harsh light on the economic logic of a system that values the dual roles of early childhood educators by so much less. There's momentum to do something about it at the federal level that we haven't seen in half a century. The question is, what will that be? We're all waiting with bated breath to see what Joe Manchin decides. That's really funny. Um, <laughs> all right, let's get, let's get started with um, how to think about the pre-K experience. Um, yeah. You know, what, when there's a new child in, in the family and um, the mother stays at home uh, with, with the young child, there's a question as to the value add associated with that versus putting the child um, immediately in mm -hmm. child care. Um, mm -hmm. And you said it was our society doesn't recognize it enough of the importance that they view like a vacation. Um, many households um, recognize and maybe um, you know, say the mother says, you know what, I'm going to take some significant time off work, um, even though it's going to cost me substantially in my career, as, as Claudia and David were saying earlier, uh, because I really value this special time with the child. And I think that I can 
contribute greatly to um, the personal growth of that child. Um, and there are other people who think that th- that mother uh, is not going to do that much value add. She's better off putting that child in child care. Um, how do we evaluate the importance of the mother versus a, a institutional or third-party provider? That's, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, the way, I mean, most of the evidence that we have on early childhood programs comes from public programs where, um, you know, we think that the counterfactual to what the what a child would be experiencing in childcare is is much much worse. So. Historically, as I kind of was alluding to there, um, public programs have served disadvantaged children. So like the Federal Head Start program targets, you know, children from lower income families. Many state state pre-K programs um, are, are also targeted toward um, disadvantaged children. The model pre-K or preschool interventions um, that have been studied uh, a great deal, for example, by Jim Heckman, um, you know, those targeted very disadvantaged children. And in all of those cases, you know, it's really about, you know, what, you know, the quality of time outside the home looks like relative to the, to the you know, um, quality within the home. And, and, and in many of those cases, you know, especially in the time periods where the literature has been concentrated, you know, it, it really appears that um, the time outside the home was, was relatively more productive. Now, as, you know, as you move up, you know, the, the sort of income ladder, um, you know, we do think that, you know, families are either able to buy better, you know, programs out, you know, or, or make better investments in their children, either, you know, directly through what the time they spend at home or, you know, through other resources that they might be able to invest in. And maybe the return to care outside the home is, is lower. But it, it doesn't mean that it's not, you know, um, worth um, engaging in. And in fact, it's it's really only... Um, the highest income families that can afford to pay out of pocket for center-based childcare um, these days it's because it's so expensive. Um, you know, Jim Heckman, I think, um, recommended disadvantaged children to get this support, uh, but didn't recommend it as a policy matter for non-disadvantaged children. Um, how do you how do you think about that? Because what's being proposed now is more of a universal program than just helping the disadvantaged. Right. I mean, I've I've spent a lot of the last five years of my career kind of thinking about this question, and I've you know I was kind of on you know I guess team team Heckman for a long time. You know, the concern is why or you know why should we spend public resources on families that would have otherwise been, you know, doing this spending, you know, sending their children to childcare on their own. There's substantial crowd out of, of private, say, programs for, for the public option. Um, and I've, you know, I've, I've even shown that in the context of um, the two earliest pre-K programs in work with Diane Schonsenbach on Oklahoma um, and Georgia. These are both sort of universal pre-K programs that were established um, in the 1990s. And, you know, we show that for less advantaged children, you know, it really looks like they, they move from, you know, home-based care into, into the, the program and they, they benefit in terms of, of higher test scores, whereas, you know, children from more advantaged environments, they look like they would have otherwise, you know, would have been in, in school, you know, anyway. 
and they, they're, you know, not getting any benefits. So it really looks like, you know, potentially a real waste of resources. And I think, you know, even though Heckman doesn't, you know, study universal programs directly, you know, it's, it's that kind of, of thinking um, that, that can weigh in. You know, the one question that was lingering after I, I did my work with Diane Schonsenbach on Oklahoma and Georgia was, um, what if a universal program um, delivers larger benefits for disadvantaged children than a targeted program would? So by targeted here, I mean, you know, there are age guidelines for enrollment, but, you know, we're also selecting students to go to these programs based on, you know, family income or, you know, mother's education or some other kind of measures of, of disadvantage. And um, it really, you know, um, looks like, like um, the programs that are universal uh, might actually have um, a higher return. So that's the paper that, that I sort of mentioned in my, in my um, presentation and the one that you also um, were referring to earlier on. And, and in that paper, what I tried to do was to compare universal and these targeted programs kind of on the same basis using kind of exactly the same data, the same kind of empirical approach that hadn't really been done before. Um, and that research showed that the gains for um, disadvantaged children of universal programs were significantly larger than in targeted programs, the programs that were just sort of serving them um, only, and um, that those um, re the returns were actually large enough to justify the additional spending on, on these, you know, quotes or so-called like inframarginal children who, you know, had a high probability of going to a program anyway. I want to ask a question about um, the value of pre-K education. I understand that this is a uh, controversial uh, subject in terms of the research findings. Um, there's been uh, two major studies, one done on Head Start. There was a very large mm -hmm. randomized experiment in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And what mm -hmm. both of them seemed to show was that when you got from pre-K to kindergarten, there were some very substantial, statistically significant benefits to those children that engaged in pre-K. But then um, by third grade, um, a lot of those gains had completely disappeared. And in the Tennessee study, uh, they found that um, pre-K actually had negative returns um, for those students that engaged in pre-K. And the reasons that they gave in their findings was that um, you know, being in an institutional setting at such a young age uh, may have had self-regulatory problems uh, created, uh, behavioral problems, and that the benefits of associated with education, which might be um, recognizing letters um, or early spelling, uh, may not have long-term benefits mm -hmm. relative to um, some, other some other purposes. What are your thoughts on the lack of um, continuation of benefits associated with pre-K. Yeah, it's really, really great um, to bring this up. So both of the, the studies that you're referring to, so the first one was the Head Start Impact Study, and there's the, then the Tennessee Voluntary Pre-K Study. Um, both of those studies were special because they used um, random assignments. So lotteries for slots at oversubscribed centers. And this is, you know, as, basically the, the gold standard of, of um, program evaluation where, you know, the kids who 
you know, are able or have the opportunity to attend really on average look the same as, as the kids who don't, and we can follow them over time. Um, so there, there is kind of an important difference between these two programs, though, um, in addition to, you know, the one being Head Start and the other one being, you know, this Tennessee pre-K program. They, they both were, were targeted programs, but that experimental protocol for the Tennessee program actually kind of fell apart um, because they couldn't actually follow up on, um, on the kids who, on, on a sort of balanced sample of kids who um, continued through the program. So I feel like those results are a little bit compromised and, and maybe not as, as believable. However, you know, fade out, um, it's kind of endemic to early childhood intervention. Um, you know, it appears in work on the Perry Preschool Project and the Carolina Abecedarian Program. Those are, those are the two that, that Jim Heckman have, have, has worked a, a great deal on. Um, Dave and Deming um, in his um, excellent work on, on Head Start um, finds evidence of this um, as well um, in, in, in Head Start comparing siblings. Um, so, you know, that isn't surprising. One of the things, you know, we have seen though in sort of research on these older programs is that despite the fade out, you know, kids really do appear to do better later in life along a variety of dimensions. For example, you know, they're more likely to, you know, stay in school or maybe, you know, are more likely to go to college and less likely to be on public, public assistance and more likely to be employed. Um, maybe we could talk a bit, um, you know, about why, why that's the case um, in, in a little bit. Um, but, um, you know, one thing, you know, also that is different about um, the Head Start Impact Study and, you know, the Tennessee program relative to those earlier studies is today, you know, precisely because more women work, um, you know, the alternative to one program is another program. There is this kind of substitution from, um, you know, from a private program into, into the public pro program, for example. Um, and, um, you know, that, that means that, you know, and, and the counterfactual here actually matters quite a bit. There's some really excellent work by, by Pat Klein and Chris Walters on the Head Start Impact Study, which, you know, does a, a pretty, you know, it's, it's a pretty technical study, but demonstrates that kids who would have otherwise, in the Head Start Impact Study, kids who would have otherwise um, been in, you know, home-based care actually do benefit um, a great deal from, from Head Start. Um, but there isn't that much of a benefit for, for kids who would have, you know, otherwise already been in um, a program of some sort. And, and I think that that actually makes a lot of sense. It's also the case in their study that, you know, they find that the, the benefits of Head Start still outweigh the, the cost. Uh, maybe to bring this David. This Claudia David. here. Okay, Claudia. Uh, I, I want to... Um, ask a question about universal and community. Because in reading your work, what I take from it is that even if children are from more well-to-do families yeah. would go to very good programs, when we split the group up, even though we have highly seg income segregated neighborhoods, when we split the kids up and we have some kids in one group that go to the private and one going to the um, public, that, that we lose something in terms of community and parental involvement. And that is why 
universal is so important. Can you speak to that? Yes, yes, great. Yes, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard for me to nail down in the study that I that I do on um, on universal versus targeted. But there is this, you know, sense um, in which, you know, these programs are are better. Um, they're they're higher quality along dimensions that are, you know, difficult for us sometimes to observe as researchers. But they're they're higher quality because there's more community kind of in you know investment of, of time and, and effort into them or higher parental expectations of what is supposed to happen in those programs. Higher income parents are much more aggressive <laughs> in terms of you know making sure that educators and caregivers know what they're expecting um, from um, from them. Um, whereas I think it, it's been you know much more difficult for lower income families to be as heavily involved in, in their children's education, which could leave, you know, programs which only serve lower income children not to kind of live up to the same standards. So that is sort of one of, that's one of the things I think is, that is going on in the background here for sure. Um, but it's, it's very, you know, difficult to test and I'm trying to think about ways to test it directly. David, just to bring you into the conversation, um, you've done some research um, on Head Start in, in pre-K, and um, I recently read a paper by one of your students um, analyzing now into kids that were in Head Start as, as their workers. And what they're finding is, is that there's uh, little to no improvement in earnings relative to, uh, to being either in a pre-K or not in a pre-K. What do you think of... Um, you know, Liz was commenting about the implications for pre-K later in life. Uh, what are you seeing in, in the research out there that we find um, as, you, uh, as you grow into adulthood? Yeah, so um, I think uh, just to circle back to some of the themes from the earlier conversation. So um, as you mentioned, uh, my student who wrote this is funny story, actually. So his paper was actually a replication of my original study that Liz mentioned earlier. And I remember he came to my office one day and was like stammering, nervous that I was going to kill it because it didn't find something that was consistent with my original study. And I said, of course not. You know, this is science. and We, we update our beliefs. And so, you know, win for, um, you know, replication and extension and understanding the results. I don't have any stake in uh, Head Start being good or not. I think it's what I think I do think it's important. I mean, I have a stake in it because I want it to work for people, but I don't have a stake in being right in terms of my research. Um, I think important to contextualize the study is that be, the nature of his replication was that he looked at people whose um, mothers were older at the time when they had children. So it's yeah. a different it's a different sample of children. So in my study, right. because I did it earlier, I was looking at very young mothers. Um, with disproportionately firstborn kids, right. those mothers tended to be poorer as well and tended to be more likely to be single mothers. And so I think the way to reconcile the studies is to just point out that for those kids, Head Start was a better alternative to either being at home or being in a different preschool if you're in a low-income area. Um, depending on the alternatives available to you, they might not have been as good, whereas children of older mothers who have more sophistication have maybe sent other kids to preschool already know what they're doing. And so when they end up in Head Start, that may not have even been their first choice. They may have preferred something else. And so the lesson is you know, this is not done in a vacuum. Um, Liz mentioned the Klein and Walters paper. What their paper essentially shows is that you need to compare your evaluation of the program to what the alternative is. And the alternatives have really That's changed right. quite a lot in, over, the, over the generation. So the, the, 
answer is not Head Start is bad. The answer is Head Start is about as good as the current existing you know, state pre-K programs or, or private pre-K programs that are out there. Um, but it's still a heck of a lot better than nothing. And so that's, I think, a consistent lesson I draw from all this research, which is that almost all of the benefits of um, delivering pre-K is getting more kids into a reasonably high-quality program, not so much you know, spending a lot of money on making it a Cadillac you know, super-sized program that you know, um, has an incredibly small teacher-student ratio and does lots of bells and whistles. It's really about making sure that kids are able to come to kindergarten ready to learn or able to be in a supportive environment at an early age. I mean, just I, following that up. I agree up, with that completely. Yeah. <laughs> just following that up, um, the alternative, I, I think, is you can either be in pre-K or you can be, you can do a private alternative, or you can, you know, be at home with your mother, um, you know, doing what, who knows what. Or, or father. Um, yeah, fair enough. Uh, being at home with the parent um, or another caregiver. Yeah. Exactly. Um, what? How should we think about? You know, I spent a lot of time in school in my life, and obviously you spend even more time. Um, and you know, school is is good, and you know, it's, it has its benefits. But there's also benefits of not being in school, of you know, enjoying your childhood, spending time with your parent, um, and and learning from them directly in, in some sort of experience. And you talked about. Um, David, particularly, you were talking about these soft skills. Um, so not necessarily purely intellectual skills, but how to work in teams or how to be yeah. uh, having good social skills. Um, all these interesting environmental issues. Why do we think that um, being in an institutional environment versus being in a home environment is better in the long run for the child at that area where there's not a lot of intellectual engagement? Yeah, so, I, so great question, Larry. I mean, I don't think that's always... It's always true. It depends on the situation. But let me, let me give you a couple of reasons why I think it, it might be better than you think. So one reason is that um, uh, if you think about like, what happens in preschool that can't be replicated at home, the big thing is interaction with other kids. So if you look at the results of the Perry Preschool Project, and indeed what these programs are mostly trying to do, they're not focused on academics. They're not focused on teaching people letters and numbers. They're actually focused on teaching kids how to play well with others, how to regulate yourself, how to not hit other kids when they take your toy. If you've been in a preschool classroom recently, a uh, common trick they use is they have a number at each table, and it's like, okay, only three kids can be at this table, and so the kids have to negotiate if there's a really desirable table, who gets to be there, and we take turns, and, and this and that. And so those are all lessons you don't learn at home that, and you learn in school, and don't really show up on tests of, you know, like if you look at the tests that people use to evaluate the Tennessee program or others, they're extremely basic vocabulary tests. Like who really cares if a kid learns vocabulary at age five or age six. It really doesn't matter in the long run, but what does matter is do they learn these social skills that are actually directly valuable in the workplace and, and really aren't taught that much in a third or fourth grade classroom. So maybe preschool is the place to get it. So that's just one example. I mean, I think when I think about sending my own kids to preschool and why we did that, despite both you know, my, my partner and I are highly educated, why do we do that? We did it because we wanted them to be with other kids and we wanted them to learn in a group environment, in a rich environment that we didn't feel we could replicate even with our you know, bundles of degrees. So at the same time, we want to complement some of that at home and like, talk about what happened in school. And, you know, like, so it's not like we're just handing the kids over. I think it's really about understanding that you live and work and learn in a society of people, and if you're just home all the time, you are missing a little bit of that. So not to suggest that being home is bad, but I think there are some trade-offs. Um, I, I agree with that completely. Uh, kids are not sitting in neat little uh, rows, <laughs> you know, at this age. They're, they're playing, you know, and they're learning how to, to exist in a, a society with, with other people. 
uh, question for uh, question for Claudia. Um, you uh, in your book you mentioned that women have been um, delaying childbirth uh, to, to much uh, older ages in order to do both education and career development. And I, I wonder um, the pros and cons of that and whether or not we should encourage women to have children at a slightly uh, younger age uh, and not you know, run out of time or have to go into IVFs, et cetera. Um, how do you view the costs and consequences of timing? Uh, what is a good age to start having kids? Yeah, so um, so delaying of childbearing has m- many different reasons and many different consequences. So, uh, you know, yes, women can have children at 12, at 14, uh, but when is the optimal time for the individual to have children? And, uh, you know, it's, it's also when is the optimal time for the individual to form uh, intimate and hopefully long-lasting, stable relationships. And I think that that is part and parcel of the issue of childbearing. If, if women just went into a little box and formed a baby and then came out with it, you know, we might have a different sense of when optimality was, but this has to do with a relationship. And if you do not yet know who you are and what your identity is and where you think you're going, you're going to form a relationship with a person. And in general, we have heterosexual relations. So I can say a woman would form a relationship with a man. And we know from very, very good studies that relationships that are formed early tend to be less stable than relationships that are formed later. Now, you may say, but later, later, how much later? Well, it it turns out that the delay in marriage that we saw in the uh, uh, 1970s in the U.S. that we've seen just about every country, including in Asia, that that uh, delay in marriage led to a delay in in childbearing. Uh, And we've continued to delay. And then, in fact, we see that women who are in their 40s now have more children, have a higher fraction, I should say, of women with children than the same uh, age group uh, in a previous uh, cohort, a previous cohort, and one of the reasons is uh, enormous desire and the use of assisted reproductive technologies. So I, I, I know that there are uh, individuals in child development who might say that it's, and in health, who might say it's healthier for a woman to have a child when she's 19, but it's unhealthy for her personally, it's unhealthy for the stability of the relationship, hopefully the two parents that are producing and taking care of the child. So I don't think we can treat the child itself in a vacuum. I guess the way I was going with this in reading your book was um, you you sort of encouraged 
uh, the delay, you know, into the late 30s because you thought that would um, be better for both developing education and career development. And I wonder about the tension associated with that relative to um, the health of the child, the health, you know, and the, the probability that you may be unable to have children. Um, you know, as, as a parent, I have a son and a daughter, and when I was speaking with my daughter, um, I discussed with her, you know, what are you thinking about in terms of like when, when you want to have kids? And that obviously is this very uncomfortable conversation. But um, I, I kept saying, you know, I, I recommend something in your you know, mid to late 20s as a, as a good spot and waiting into your late 30s is, is a little late. You know, um, my wife and I had children of when we were, you know, 33 and 35. Um, and I, I viewed that as we were playing with fire a little bit. Um, how do you think about, you know, I wasn't suggesting 19 uh, for my daughter. I was suggesting, you know, mid to late 20s. How, how do you st still think about, because you spend a lot of time thinking about like when, um, how to plan your career, how to maximize lifetime um, earnings. Um, but there's also, you know, decisions that you need for the children. How, how should we right. weigh those costs? So, so the first thing, let, let's just put it on the table. I never tell people to do anything, what to do, when to do it. Um, I am talking about what has happened and why it has happened. I am describing, I'm a historian, not a psychiatrist. So, but let us realize the facts, Larry, that the my generation graduating college from the, 19, uh, the late 1960s to around 1980, we were the ones who went out and said, we can delay childbearing and pay no price. We can go and get the high degrees. And that generation, among all college graduate women, had rates of childlessness that were exceptionally high. But the next generation graduating college from the 1980s and beyond, we know what they've done. They're already... 45 years old, and they have continued to lay, and yet they have child-bearing rates that are monumentally higher. And so where there's a will, there's a way, perhaps. Uh, so in, in fact, they, they didn't have fewer children or, or a, a lower percent of them, a lower percentage of them, I didn't have children. In fact, a higher percentage of the group had children. So delay in this group does not necessarily mean that you're not going to have kids. But yes, it's going to reduce the probability. No question. All right. Um, I end each show uh, on a note of optimism. And so I wanted to go to each speaker and talk about what they're optimistic about. Um, Claudia has listened to the show more than David has, so I'll start with Claudia first. Maybe she won't be as blindsided by the question. Uh, sure. Claudia, what are you optimistic about? Okay, so rather than talk about optimism, I want to talk about gratitude very quickly. I am grateful to the American economy in April of 2020 that it did not enter a Great Depression of lasting unemployment. I thought it would. I am grateful a group of incredible scientists who created vaccines and, and treatments. I am grateful to a very different group of essential workers who delivered food and goods to the nation's families at their risk. 
and I am grateful to many in our nation who came together to protest deep-seated inequities such as systemic racism and gender inequalities in caregiving and gave voice to these wrongs at a time when it was dangerous. And finally, I am grateful that some amazing technologies have enabled us to be remote and yet productive. The return to a new normal at work and at home makes me cautiously optimistic. Wonderful. David, why don't you go next? How do I follow that up? <laughs> I don't know. Good luck. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think, Claudia, that's so well put. Um, I think in addition to everything Claudia said, which I fully endorse, um, I'm optimistic uh, as well about some of the changes that I see happening in our, I, w I would call it workforce development system, so education and training institutions, um, the way that employers are seeing religion in terms of investing in workers, um, creating pathways for people to have meaningful family-sustaining careers rather than just dead-end jobs. You know, when you look at the jobs that make up the so-called great resignation, it's a lot of service sector jobs that are relatively dead-end jobs, and I think the fact that we're finding ways to you know, maybe even automate those jobs away is actually a good thing because they're not very good jobs. And if we can find a way to get people on track to have careers that are meaningful to them, that give them opportunities for development of skills, I think that'll just be better for everyone. And I think we're in the midst of that transformation now, maybe even in the early stages of it. And I'm quite optimistic about some of the innovation I see out there in the, in the world. Great. Uh, Liz, do you want to end on a note of optimism? Sure. Thanks, Larry, for forcing me to think about this because it's easy to get so kind of caught up on the fact that it's so difficult for us to take collective action on, on, you know, on issues that are so important for the future of humanity. But if I have to say something, I would say that my, my two daughters who are nine and 12 years old, they give me great cause for optimism. They are the children of two parents who've done their part to maintain couple equity and gender equality. And they're also products of a really high quality um, early care and education um, system here locally. They're confident, smart, creative, and fearless. So I think everyone should watch out, and I think we should be confident in the future. Thank you. Okay, that ends today's session, uh, but I want to make a plug for next week. Uh, next Sunday, Halloween, we'll, we will have two speakers. The first is Jack Katz, who is one of our leading sociologists. Jack is best known for his book, Seductions of Crime, and his topic uh, today, or that uh, next Sunday, will be speaking about the loss of central control of cities and the increasing anarchy of neighborhoods. Jack is interested in city development and how the decline of central authority changes neighborhood dynamics. Jack specifically will discuss a case study of his, which is the city of Hollywood, California, and in great detail. The second speaker will be James Holmes, who has been on What Happens Next previously. He holds the J.C. Wiley Chair of Maritime Strategy at the Naval War College. James will discuss strategies for Taiwan to defend itself against a potential Chinese invasion. James will also discuss the implications of China's recent successful test of hypersonic ballistic missiles and how it will change the balance of power in the South China Sea. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's broadcast, uh, or any episode of What Happens Next, or you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com, and replays of every program is available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.